right, so good to see you guys tonight. I want to start off by making uh, an announcement about uh, financial giving uh, here at uh, at Autumn Ridge, and what we're talking about is uh, we're talking about is receiving an offering, and that is something that from the very beginning has been a cherished part of worship services when a church would gather, uh, going all the way back uh, to the beginning. I don't know if you guys remember my very first weekend as your pastor. A little thing called COVID happened. Um, kind of messed up how we got to do stuff, and there were all kinds of restrictions. And was anybody here back in the early days when we would like seat you and you had to come through a cattle guard and you weren't allowed to sing or say anything? It was just crazy. And one of the things that we got rid of during that time was offering because we didn't want everybody touching the same thing. And, um, and believe it or not, it's not as easy to, when you take something away, to it's not as easy as flipping a switch to bring it back. Everything that you see happen around here at Autumn Ridge Church, there's a team of staff, there's a team of volunteers behind that making that happen. There's all kinds of systems uh, that take place. And we are now at a spot where we are ready to bring back, this is going to happen in, in, a, in a few weeks, we're going to bring back the offering and receiving an offering as a cherished part of worship in our services. And I'm asking if you guys would celebrate that with me for two reasons. One, because historically it's always been a part of just... Um, a celebration and worship when the church gathers together. And two, it is the final, the very last restriction from COVID that's going away. And I'm excited about that. So woo, that's a super exciting thing. Yeah. All right, cool. So that'll happen in a few weeks. Uh, tonight, as we dive into our uh, final installment of our regifting series, I want to begin uh, by doing a bit of a recap of a couple of emphases that we've spotlighted, uh, not just in this series, but really this, uh, during the course of this year. And the first one is this. Our spiritual maturity will never outpace our emotional maturity. And really, this right here, it's just impossible uh, to disconnect it or divorce it from this. And for those of us in the room who are still trying to get our minds wrapped around that, maybe you're still trying to wonder, Rick, do I really, do I really agree with you about that? I want you to to imagine a couple trying to enjoy a very mature marriage, but they're both emotionally immature people. That doesn't really work, does it? For the relationship to mature, it requires the people involved uh, to mature emotionally as well. And really, just about every relationship works that way. It's not enough for what we think and for what we believe to align with the truth. It's not enough for what we do to align with the truth. Also, the emotional part of who we are that God designed on purpose also needs to align with what's true. I mean, we're just going to be limited in our ability to practice self-control when we are stressed out if we're not also growing in emotional maturity. We're going to be limited in our ability to have joy in times of adversity if we're not also growing in emotional maturity. We're going to be limited in our ability to extend forgiveness to others and really just break up with the tyranny of bitterness if we're not also growing in emotional maturity. Believe it or not, we're going to struggle to think clearly. We're going to struggle to think with wisdom if we're not also growing in emotional maturity. And I think of it kind of like a train, and the engine of the train is our spiritual maturity, and it's pulling along the cars, the rest, uh, all the other aspects of our lives, and this cannot go at a faster pace than the cars that it's pulling. Our spiritual maturity, our discipleship, is not going to go at a faster pace than other aspects of our life like emotional maturity. And so the question is, where is this train headed? Where are we going? And here's the second emphasis that we've introduced this year. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. 
Leadership is not about having a position. Leadership is about having a disposition. Just from a perspective of the gospel, from a biblical perspective, leadership is about embracing our God-given responsibility to join him in cultivating goodness. And you don't have to have a position to do that. All that's required is that we have a disposition that's willing to do so. That's leadership. And the top responsibility that Jesus gave to us, his followers, is to point other people to him, is to lead other people to him. And so throughout this series, this has been our drumbeat, this has been our anthem. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. And so let's embrace our God-given responsibility. Let's embrace our God-given privilege and be a gift to the world for Jesus. Let's be the kind of people that an encounter with us is a glimpse into what it's like to have an experience with Jesus. And so today, tonight, is our final installment in this series that's 100% about that. Tonight, we're going to look at a kind of wrapping paper. If we really embrace this wrapping paper, wrap ourselves up in it, it's going to force us to get honest about how far we're willing to follow Jesus into emotional maturity. It's going to force us to get honest about how far we're willing to follow Jesus into leadership. Now, throughout this series, each week what we've done is we've slowed down and we've really zoomed in on a scene from the life of Jesus. Tonight, we're doing something different. Instead, we're looking at how a guy, one guy in particular, intentionally wrapped himself up in such a way that he was continually pointing others to the goodness and to the greatness of Jesus. And the kind of wrapping paper that we're talking about uh, tonight, I gotta be honest with you, just a lot of people, they don't naturally want this. I'll speak for me. I don't naturally want the wrapping paper we're gonna talk about tonight. This is our text. 2 Corinthians 12 says this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Are you guys excited? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I hope it's cool for me to be honest with you guys tonight. I am on the struggle bus. I believe this. I don't believe that I'm a good example of this, at least not yet. Now, the guy who wrote this, he's a great example of it. And his attitude about strength and weaknesses has a lot to tell us tonight about how we can live our lives in such a way to point people to the goodness and the greatness and the strength of Jesus. The guy who wrote this, his name, we know him as the Apostle Paul. And let's see here, um, historians, both the religious historians, irreligious historians, they pretty much all agree he would be one of the top 15 most influential people in all of human history. Uh, when he was alive, he was probably very likely in the top 1% of educated people on the planet. If he were alive today, at the very least, he would have the equivalent of a PhD in Old Testament, a PhD in philosophy. He would be a New York Times bestseller. He would be an internationally sought after consultant on church planting and leadership development, right? And that guy wrote this. And before we get into the context, before we get into why, before we get into unpacking it, can we just kind of sit in this for a moment? That guy, as accomplished as he was, said, I delight in weaknesses, insults, 
I delight in hardships and persecution because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Do you agree with that? Now, I know this is a room full. Lots of people say, yeah, Rick, I agree with that. So is it cool if I just ask how many of you guys are leading by delighting in your weaknesses? How many of you guys just lead with that? Who in here on your resume, you just write down the things you're not good at and how your coworkers, the negative things they say about you. Who's doing that? Who is leading with unflattering information about yourself on your dating profile? Who here is just getting super honest about all the things you struggle with when you're applying for residency or your next step in career advancement? Now, some of us might be saying, Rick, those are fun questions to be sure, but they're too silly for a serious engagement with this text. All right, so I got a question for you. Do you ever feel the desire to present yourself as an enhanced version of the real you? Anybody else relate to this? I just need people to see me as smart. I need people to see me as successful. I need people to see me as a good parent. I need people to see me as a good Christian. I need people to see me as having it all together. I need people to see me as, you fill in the blank. I mean, what is it? What is that thing that you want people to see you as? And if they don't see you as that, it bothers you. It grinds you. It tempts you to present yourself as an enhanced version of the real you. Now, what's going on in here? There is pride at work for sure. There's pride at the root, but that's not all there is. You know what else is going on? A desire for acceptance. We are all acceptance magnets. And we spend our lives trying to solve what I call the acceptance algorithm. And this is a sinister equation with two parts. The first part is this. Who do I want to accept me? Who do I need to accept me? You got to figure that out. And the second part is, what is it going to take to be acceptable by them? And the reason I call this a sinister equation is because the variables are always changing. As soon as you get kind of locked in with one group and you feel accepted by them, all of a sudden there's a new group of people you want to be accepted by. And what got you acceptable to the old group doesn't work with the new group. Am I speaking gibberish or are you guys picking up what I'm putting down? One time I did a wedding um, for a couple. The, the groom was a Navy diver. And to be a Navy diver, you got to be in shape. This guy wasn't just in shape. He looked like chiseled granite. <laughs> now his brother was the best man who just happened to be a Navy SEAL. There's one other guy in the wedding party. He was an army ranger. And so as the four of us stood up there in front of everyone, who looked like he didn't belong? Now what am I going to do to impress those guys? What am I going to do to be accepted by those guys? Am I going to tell them about the time I gave a sermon and someone made a comment that hurt my feelings, but I was super brave about it? Now, these are good dudes. These are Christian men. I, they didn't, I didn't have to do anything to be acceptable by them. After all, I was paid to be there. I was paid to do the ceremony. But I was kind of caught off guard. I found myself wanting to have like an enhanced version of me that did not match the real version of me. And as dumb as it is to say out loud, as embarrassing as it is to say out loud, as I stood up there, I wanted to have a kind of a tougher, braver, manlier, whatever version of me. Do, let's go to this. Do you ever, do you ever feel the desire to present yourself as an enhanced version of the real you. Let's look, at, let's look at what the Apostle Paul had to say again. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How willing are you to lead with your flaws, to lead with your embarrassing moments, to lead with and get honest about those things that it feels like you struggle with, it seems like nobody else is struggling with? How willing are you to lead with your weaknesses, your inadequacies, the things that you're afraid are going to cause you to look foolish in front of other people? How willing are you to let those things be the canvas upon which Jesus displays his greatness and his strength in your life. How willing are you for that to happen? Let's look at these words again. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I think we're ready to start answering the question, what is going on here? What's the context? Why did the Apostle Paul write this? And some of you guys might know this rule. Whenever you see a therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What is it? Therefore. All right. And the answer to that question always comes in what was written before that. Now, this is, uh, I want to encourage you to go back and read uh, sometime this week uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and also read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's going to give you a little bit broader context. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that existed in the city of Corinth. He started that church. He planted it. He dearly loved that church. And he sacrificed himself for that church. And um, it, to, to share the gospel, to plant churches, it required the Apostle Paul to face all kinds of persecution and hardship. And if you go back and if you read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, but start in, in chapter 11 and read what he lists there, you're going to find that he had to deal with this kind of stuff, that there were times that he was literally whipped with whips. There were times that he was beaten with rods. And there were times that, that he was pelted with stones and rocks. There's there was a time that he was shipwrecked and he thought he was going to drown. There were times that he was in prison. There were numerous times that he didn't have adequate clothing to wear. He didn't have enough food to eat. But he was compelled by the love of Christ. And the love of Christ resulted in an unrelenting kind of love for other people that caused him to push forward even in times of pain and difficulty and hardship. So why is he writing about that now? Like, what is going down in the church at Corinth? Why does he bring that up? At this point in his life, he was away from the church at Corinth, and he was uh, helping to start some other churches and, and serve the needs of other churches. And while he was away, a group of people came in to try to take over the leadership of the church at Corinth. And these people, apparently, they called themselves super apostles, real humble dudes, they never, they never would have allowed themselves to go through the kind of mistreatment that the Apostle Paul went through. They were way too big time for that. Far too self-respecting for that. And it appears that these guys who called themselves super apostles, that they were master communicators, that they were just naturally more talented public speakers, more interesting public speakers than Paul was. We also get the impression, reading through 2 Corinthians 11, that, that they might have been master manipulators as well. When they would come into a room, when they would come into a group, they just had a way of taking over. People were really impressed by them, and they were commanding, and they could demand money from people, and people would gladly fork it over. 
And if that sounds crazy to you, still today, there are people who are getting crazy rich off of Christians. And these super apostles, these fake apostles, were false teachers and greedy scoundrels. And they were using the people to serve their own self-interest and their own selfish agenda. And it was causing a division in the church. And people wanted to know, what are we going to do? Who's more impressive? Who's better? Who's going to win out? Who's going to win the trust of the church? Who's going to win out as the leadership that this church trusts? The super apostles or Paul? And Paul just decided, I'm not playing that game. And I'm certainly not playing by their rules. And instead of posturing and bragging about how great he was, the Apostle Paul just led with his weaknesses, with his, with his inadequacies, with his embarrassing stuff. And he just said, guys, I'm weak. But why would he do that? Because if people don't ever see us as weak, how will they ever see Jesus as strong? The reason that the Apostle Paul led with weakness, the reason that he made a big deal about his inadequacies and why he wasn't enough in and of himself is because he wanted people to see how great Jesus was. That was the sole focus of his life and his ministry. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so a little bit before this text that we've read, the Apostle Paul wrote this. We're going to back up and we're going to look at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul wrote this. If I must boast, I will boast of all the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. So he's making kind of a vow before God. What I'm about to say is totally true. And he tells this story. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of, of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Kind of a weird story to tell when people are like, who's the most impressive leader? They raise their hand and be like, well, there's this one time that I was really afraid and I had to escape by being lowered in a basket. But immediately after this, immediately after telling that story, he wrote about that there was a time that God gave him a vision, a, a, a revelation. It was, it was something spectacular. Which is, seems like the card you want to play. Which seems like the thing that you want to lead with if you are in the showdown of the apostles. What is going to make you spiritually superior? But after talking about this just fascinating, beautiful revelation he had from God, he said, that's not really that big of a deal and it doesn't make me special. And then he wrote this. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted. I love it when people think more of me than is warranted. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say because of these surpassing great revelations. God's, God's shared some beautiful things with me. That doesn't make me better. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming Conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What is sufficient? Grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
Sometimes people ask, why is this thorn in the flesh that Paul had? I don't know. Scholars have debated, and there's some interesting theories, but Paul doesn't ever really just tell us exactly what it is. What we know is it's a metaphor for a very real, literal pain that he had that God caused to grow him spiritually, to protect him from his vulnerability of being conceited and arrogant and prideful so that he would grow in humility. God caused it. He wouldn't take it away. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Because when you are weak, people see my strength in your life. Tonight, the wrapping paper that we're talking about is wrapping ourselves up in honesty about our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our inadequacies, and the things that might cause us to look foolish or less than in front of other people. And for us to be able to do that, for us to be able to say, yeah, I'll do that, we have to be content and know how to rest in and delight in the grace of Jesus and to see it as sufficient. And so my question for myself, which is the same question that I want to ask you is, do I need, do you need something more than the grace of Jesus to be okay with you? Do you need something more than his love, his forgiveness, his delight, and his acceptance? Like, is the grace of Jesus sufficient for you to be okay, or do you just really want somebody else or another group to also accept you? Is the grace of Jesus sufficient for you to be okay, or is there just kind of this nagging need to get somebody else's approval as well? Is the grace of Jesus, his love, his friendship, his forgiveness, his acceptance, his delight, is it sufficient? Or do we find ourselves longing for something else also so that we can feel okay? There are some historical facts at play that if we don't see them, we'll be limited in our ability to truly see what the Apostle Paul is talking about and feel the real depth and punch of what he wrote. I'm curious, does anyone in here, has anyone in here ever heard of a Corona Morales? This is a picture of a Corona Morales. It is a crown that is shaped to look like the walls of a city. This is what's left of a statue of uh, the goddess Octavia. If you went to Corinth today, where Paul was writing to, you could go to the museum at Corinth and you could see this. Octavia is wearing uh, Corona Moralis. Now, this was also something that was fashioned and handed out as an award for bravery to soldiers. In ancient times, ancient cities were commonly walled cities, for their, uh, for their protection, for their defense. And if you wanted to take over an area, you had to capture the key city, and that meant laying siege to it and overcoming the wall so that you could capture that, that key city. And I'm sure that you've seen this play out many times in, in various movies. Eventually, soldiers would fight their way to the base of the city walls, and then they would put up ladders and climb the ladders and go over the wall and fight people from the inside out to take over the city. Very, very dangerous because if you're climbing the ladder, there are people who are shooting arrows down at you. They're hurling boulders over the side at you. They're sometimes pouring hot tar on you. Um, it, was a, it, was an, it was an act of sheer bravery to simply get on the ladder in the first place. 
But the first person, the first soldier who was able to climb the ladder and scale the wall and get over the top was awarded the Corona Moralis, this crown, to commemorate their uncommon valor. Now, most of the time, it was awarded posthumously because if you were the first guy over, you're immediately surrounded by the enemy. But sometimes, the first guy over survived. And it was a difficult thing to prove that you were the first one over the wall because your buddies probably were killed in battle too. And so for you to claim the Corona Moralis, you had to come before everyone and you had to make a vow, an elaborate vow before the gods that I made it over first. I am the bravest. So why did the Apostle Paul And this time where there's this battle over who's going to be the leader and who's going to be trusted, why did he tell a story about when things got really hard and scary, he had to be let down over the wall in a basket? Because he's not just boasting and bragging about his weaknesses. He's saying, guys, my story is the opposite of a hero's story. This is where the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I think, is very helpful. He says this, And as the climax of the whole list, Paul declares with a solemn oath that when the going got really tough, he was the first one over the wall, running away, being let down on a rope in a basket. He is claiming an upside-down Corona Morales. And I don't think Paul was a coward, but I think what Paul was trying to say is, guys, I am not playing this game. It is not about who is the most impressive. And anybody who is trying to make you think that they are impressive, they are leading you away from the thing that you should focus on most because the object of our awe and devotion and our focus should be Jesus. And I think this is Paul's way of saying to them, listen, yes, you can trust me. You can't trust those dudes. They are using you. But at the end of the day, the one who should get your allegiance and your focus is Jesus. And Paul understood that the context of his, of his weaknesses, his, his inadequacies, the things that might even make him look foolish is a perfect canvas for Jesus to display his strength and his greatness in Paul's life. I think there's some just really helpful practical truth and application for us. See, this is what happens when someone trusts and follows Jesus. The gospel produces people who can say, I'm weak, I'm not that impressive. I got things I'm not terribly proud of because that is an amazing canvas for Jesus to display his greatness. Religion is just the opposite. A religious mindset says we have to always be strong. We have to always look impressive. We have to make it look like we have it together. And all of our weaknesses, all the embarrassing details, All the things that might cause people to to look at us as a tad foolish, we need to keep that locked up safe on the inside. And so this is what I want to do. I want to ask a question, and I want to use that question over the next couple of minutes to to look at some real-life scenarios to kind of help us get to a point where we can see, are we willing to wrap ourselves up like this? Are we willing to go shields down and let others see our weakness and our frailties so that our lives can be the canvas upon which Jesus displays his greatness and his strength 
in our lives. And remember, we shared this a couple of weeks ago, we can't be more honest with someone else than we are with ourselves. So this is about us being honest. This is, we gotta be, if we're gonna be honest with Jesus in prayer, we gotta first be honest with ourselves. If we're gonna be honest in our small groups, we gotta first be honest with ourselves. So here's my question. Do you ever hold back because you feel foolish, weak, or inadequate? Do you ever hold back because you feel foolish, weak, or inadequate? And this is just a chance for us to look at some real-life scenarios and get honest. Do you ever hold back praying in front of others, sharing your faith, being expressive in worship, answering or talking honestly in your small group? Do you ever hold back going to a small group, talking to a counselor, going to a marriage retreat, asking someone to pray with you? Do you ever hold back going public with your decision to follow Jesus, saying, I don't know, saying, I was wrong, dropping your defensiveness to try a new way of doing something? Do you ever hold back asking for feedback, joining a ministry team, asking a question because there's something that you don't understand? Do you ever hold back stepping into someone else's pain, inviting a friend, coworker, or neighbor to church, wearing what you want to wear to church instead of what you believe others expect you to wear? Do you ever hold back talking to someone in the lobby who you haven't met before? Do you ever hold back being honest about your fears or, or sins that you struggle with? Do you ever hold back expressing grief in front of or with others? Do you ever hold back asking for help? Asking, how can I help? Going on a mission trip. Do you ever hold back risking rejection from a significant other because of a decision that you want to make for Jesus? Do you ever hold back trusting God with your kids instead of controlling them or opting for reputation management? Do you ever hold back being honest about a hurt, disappointment, or offense that you felt with another believer or someone at church? It is okay to lead with weakness and vulnerability. It's not just okay, it's good to lead with weakness and vulnerability. When we look at the life of Paul, when we look at his example and we look at, at what he wrote, we don't just find truth, we find that. But we also find good news. We also find encouragement, and I hope that you are encouraged by this in the same way that I'm encouraged by this. God doesn't look for powerful people to use. He uses weak people powerfully. That is good news for me. God doesn't look for powerful people to use. He used weak people powerfully. Do you remember earlier I said, for this to be authentic, for this to be real in us, it requires for us to really settle in and trust in and put the rest in, put the weight of our lives onto the grace of Jesus. Jesus. 